When you think of Iowa, one of the first things that comes to mind, I bet, is corn. But how much of the Iowa economy is actually invested in corn? And with corn and soy fields all over, is there any room for more sustainable local agriculture? We could take it slowly. This is All Things Grinnell. I'm your host, Ben Benversi. On this week's show, we'll talk with Jordan Scheibel from the class of 2010, who, after getting involved with local agriculture as a student, decided to plant himself here after graduation and now runs an organic farm on the outskirts of Grinnell. Then we'll talk with Jack Moody, Emeritus Professor of Economics, about the impact of tariffs on the Iowa economy. This week's show is coming up next after a word from Grinnell College. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not represent the views of Grinnell College. The small size of Grinnell is an adjustment for many students who come from big cities. For Jordan Scheibel, though, it was the opposite. He came to Grinnell from the little town of Morris, Connecticut, about a quarter the size of Grinnell. What struck him the most, though, wasn't the hustle and bustle of Grinnell's vibrant downtown, but the vast agricultural landscape. He took to walking, following the railroad tracks and venturing far from campus. He developed an interest in agriculture and got involved with the student garden on campus and the community garden at Miller Park in Grinnell. But Jordan didn't always care so much about local food. I grew up with a very limited diet, like I was uh, a very picky eater. (laughs) So I had no interest in vegetables from like an eating standpoint. Uh But then my diet started to expand a little bit, and then I got more interested in vegetables from an eating standpoint. And then that kind of leads back to gardening a little bit. Can you take me back to getting involved with the garden and how that actually like happened and, and what it was like when you were a student here? Yeah, so I so it used to be uh, on Park Street um, where the three language houses are now. Uh, so it was between uh, Faculty House and the Reading Lab. So it was just like two. I guess there used to be buildings there, and uh-huh. they had put the garden on it. So it was kind of like two empty lots, and the garden was on one of those lots. And I just walked by, and there was a sign out front that said Student Garden, and it had an email address on it. I think, it's, I think it was um, like a defunct student group, as it turned out. So I, I was just like, oh, cool, garden. And I, I emailed the address. And they were like, we don't manage the garden anymore, but this is who we think does. I think it was Tom Christensen, I think was his name. And I emailed him and he was like, oh, you want to do a work day? Yeah, let's do a work day. This was like April or May. So it was like spring had started and like nothing was going on in the garden. So we went in and like dug one of the raised beds out of weeds and planted some arugula and some other stuff. And then I left for the summer. And then I came back in the fall and I don't really, I think we kind of organized some fall uh, work days that fall and then in the spring so i kind of got like increasingly more involved and like tom had graduated so it basically just like fell to me to run the garden it was all pretty informal um and i think around that time we started a student garden group you know and like got a garden email and stuff because up to that point it was like had been managed by one of the environmental groups like which is now long defunct Uh so there was like kind of this transition where it actually became its own student group um, and this was also around the time that we were pushing for Eco House. So my second year was the group that got together to do Eco House. So it was kind of like that group of people was also involved in the garden. Um, yeah, so a lot of a lot of stuff happened that second year of us trying to like kind of like reclaim the garden from weeds and like pull up like old landscape fabric. And um, I think uh, I think that summer, the summer before my second year, there had been a group project 
it was a project for peace. Yeah, and so that that group got a grant to do like basically to put more local food into the schools and so on. And they acquired like a greenhouse around that time, and that was the greenhouse that was there that they installed there. And um, uh, so yeah, the, this thing started happening then. And I sort of I went to Grinnell in London in the fall of 2008, and when I got back, it was like my garden. Like that, I, that, I started pretty much running it from then on. Um, and that summer after my junior year, we did the um, the Sarah Boyer Community Service Award. So there was a group of us who got together and did that. We started the community garden at uh, Miller Park, Lake Nyanza, which is okay. still there. And then we also managed the student garden. So I was there from, you know, I got back to Grinnell in January, and I stayed all the way through my final semester, my senior year. So I got to see the garden through the entire growing season. That was the first time I, that I had managed a garden, like, through its entire because before I would like plant something and then leave, come back in the summer, come back. see what happens. Yeah, so that that was, and then I basically didn't leave Grinnell for an extended period after that, except for holidays, because I I moved into a a house in June of two thousand nine, which was uh, right before my last semester at Grinnell. So I moved in the house that I still live in now. Oh really? Yeah. So I like pretty much like settled in Grinnell at that point. Um, so when I graduated, I was still kind of taking care of the student garden, <laughs> and I was trying to get other people to like take over. And um, that was when I got involved with the Galfa interns, which there still are. I don't think they're called Galfa anymore, but Galfa was just stood for Grinnell Area Local Foods Alliance, and it was kind of just a name that John Adelson used to do his work. And at one time, it had a paid staff person. They actually had a, like a one or two year grant. And they had a paid staff person, but after that, all they did was they funded one or two summer apprentices and their job was to take care of the student garden mainly and then do some other things and so i got involved in like helping to select people for that along with ann brow um and so i did that for like three or four years after i graduated and then i was kind of in this supervisory role where i was like helping get people up to speed about how to manage the garden so i can think of um at least three sets of apprentices that i worked with possibly four that i worked with over the years and they kind of they were working for the summer, but then the expectation was, yeah, but once school starts, you'll kind of like also help manage the garden too. And that didn't always happen because they had their own activities and, right. and stuff. So the garden was kind of like usually well, really well kept during the summer and then like fell off during the school year. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was kind of the, that was kind of the pattern um, for most, for the years leading up to the, the new garden starting. So take me through the decision to stick around Grinnell after you graduated and plant your roots here. Yeah. So, uh, my wife, Emily, we, we got together in 2007, so when I was a second year, and she was a senior at Grinnell. So she graduated, but she had been running the what is now called the Liberal Arts in Prison program as a student. And she wanted to do it full-time, and she had a dean, Kathleen Skerritt, who now has since moved to, I forgot where she went, like to Vanderbilt or something. But she was very supportive, and she basically got her a job to run the prison program full-time and, and to start a credit program, which is what she really wanted to do. And so she was staying in Grinnell, and then I was finishing school. When I finished school, she had a job, and we had moved into a house together um, with our housemate, Kirsten, and her, her daughter, Lydia, and we still live there. So I, like, you know, if that hadn't happened, we probably wouldn't have stayed in Grinnell. I wouldn't have stayed in Grinnell, but it was like, okay, we're here. Um, and so I'd run the student garden. We also had funding to pay for, like, our food over the summer. And so we, we bought CSA shares. So I had a CSA share from Grinnell Heritage Farm, and... That summer, I ate from the garden in the CSA share, and it was like my first summer of eating locally and understanding the seasons, and I got introduced to tons of vegetables, kohlrabi, rhubarb, uh, turnips, things I'd never eaten growing up, um, and like cooking and like being in my own house and cooking. 
so that was a real introduction to eating locally and seasonally and, and gardening. And that fall, um, there's a couple of Grinnell students, uh, Thomas Agrin and Allie Ganade, who now live in Iowa City. And Allie works for New Pioneer Co-op. And Thomas is a painter and a muralist, and he's painted a ton of murals for New Pioneer and in Iowa City. They worked for Grinnell Heritage after they graduated. And I knew them, and they, Allie approached me and said, hey, uh, you know, Grinnell Heritage is starting their fall share, and they need workers in the fall, like to harvest carrots and beets and storage crops and stuff, because that was the first year they really like had a huge amount of storage crops. And uh, so I got hired to work like 10, 12 hours a week that fall at the farm. And so that's when I started working at Grinnell Heritage um, while still doing like gardening stuff and finishing my last semester in college. Uh-huh. But I knew that Thomas and Allie were leaving um, to go to I- Iowa City um, after the end of the growing season. So I knew Grinnell Heritage was going to be looking for employees and I, I was going to be grad. I was graduating mid-year, and I needed a job. And this was like the depth of the recession too. There were no, there were really no jobs, at all. Like even like really, there was just nothing. And so I, I said, hey, I'm available if you need a full-time worker. They're like, yeah, sure. So I started working full-time there in April 2010. So that was right after I graduated, and I just I stayed working there for three more years. And that's really how I got introduced to organic agriculture. And through Grinnell Heritage, I met. Um, I got hooked up with PFI, Practical Farmers of Iowa, um, started meeting other young farmers who were in that network. I got hooked up with um, Midwest Organic, um, the Midwest Organic Conference in La Crosse, Wisconsin, which is the biggest organic farming conference in the world. Well, not the world, in the U.S. And um, I went there on a scholarship and I met people who were similar to me in that they had no farm background and they didn't own any land and they were still farming and they're just like doing it. They're just like, yeah, I'm leasing like a half acre here and a half acre here and like running the CSA. And I was like, you know, I, I was really blown away by people's like gumption yeah. to do that. And so that really got me thinking that because I, I came from a non-farm background. I didn't own land, wasn't from here. I really, th- there was just kind of this like barrier where I just felt like I couldn't farm, you know, like right. it wasn't possible. Like it would be very, even if you wanted to, even if, yeah. And it was like, I didn't know if I wanted. it was, it felt very like presumptuous or that mm-hmm. it'd be a, like, I'd be like a real poser if I thought I could farm, you know, like I don't have any of the things that you're supposed to have, but there are people who are doing it. And so that really started to break the psychological barrier for me. Um, but that was yeah, basically how I ended up, how we ended up in Grinnell. Yeah. Can you tell us a little more about Middleway Farms and how that's going for you? Yeah. Um, so Middleway Farm is, I, I lease land from the Lacina family. So they, they're the fourth, I guess Joe is the fourth generation to live on the farm. Um, and they have yeah, so pretty deep roots in this area in Tama, Tama area. Um, so it's just north of Grinnell. I originally got hooked up with them because um, Molly Rideout, who was my year, um, got hired to run an artist residency on their farm, Grin City Collective. So Joe and Laurel live on the farm now, and Tom and Alicia are Joe's parents, and they moved off of the farm um so joe went to micah the art um, art school and uh he used to like invite his friends back to the farm um for the summer just to like do art and so they had this kind of informal artist residency going and then they kind of formalized it and like they kind of kept making it more and more um professional and like an actual thing and then they hired molly to like run it um, and actually make it more than just a summer residency, actually actually have like a spring and fall residency and expand it beyond college students, which originally it was just, um, originally it was just for like Iowa college students and then they would do like Illinois college students. Um, and a bunch of Grinnell people have went through that iteration and then they went through this later iteration of Grin City too. But they, at, at this point, they were in this real like expansion phase where they're like, oh, what do we, we got this whole farm property, what are we gonna do? And 
Molly knew me. She knew I worked for a farm. And so she invited me and Emily over for dinner because she wanted to talk to Emily about doing work in the prisons. She wanted to talk to me about a garden. And I'm like, well, you should just start a garden. I mean, like, why, why haven't you started a garden already? And, like, the next week we were out plowing up a space for a garden. Um, with Tom, so like Tom was like, you know how to you know you know how to drive a tractor. I'm like sort of, and he's like, <laughs> so I get on. And he's, he's teaching me how to use a plow. So we plowed up a pretty big area, like a two or three thousand square foot area. And that next year, I, I managed the garden there, pretty much on a volunteer basis. I was still working at Grinnell Heritage and doing other stuff. Um, but that was around the time where I was starting to think about, did I actually want to farm? And I kind of had to make a choice. I was doing some nonprofit work for Imagine Grinnell. I was still working on a farm, and I kind of thought saw that there were there were these two parallel tracks where I could kind of do nonprofit work or I could farm. And I decided that I liked farming because the, the results were far more tangible. Mm. And it was like the consequences, everything was kind of more real and like the consequences were more immediate rather than like I would do things when I was doing the nonprofit work and it just like wasn't clear if I was having any impact or not. So I chose farming and I went to Tom and Molly and I said, I want to like start an actual like farm, like a commercial farm. And we talked about, well, should it be like part of Green City or not? And we decided that it should be an independent business and I would just work in partnership with Green City. And so that was that was Middleway Farm. That's how, when I started it. Um, and my first full growing season was 2013. So I quit Grinnell Heritage and started um, running the farm part time. I had another job for a while. So I started really small and just like a third of an acre, made a ton of mistakes. I had like 10 CSA members the first year and I did the farmer's market. So each year I've kind of grown a little bit, expanded my land base and my CSA membership. And in 2016, I started farming full-time, so I quit my other job. So for the last three years, I've been farming full-time. Um, and at this point, I have about two acres of produce and about, uh, it depends on the season, but about 60 to 80 CSA members. And then I do the farmer's market and a, and a few other outlets. Um, and it's diverse, highly diverse produce, like 30 to 40 different varieties of things because I'm trying to supply a CSA and market from like May through November. Uh-huh. Yeah. Being here in Grinnell as a farmer, how have you come to understand and appreciate the value of local foods and your connection to the land? Um, there's a quote I really like, uh, which is, uh, there's no more intimate way to uh, relate to your environment than to eat from it. And I think part of the ways that people feel alienated from ecology and the, the place around them is because we no longer look to the area around us to actually feed us. It's just sort of this backdrop. And then we think food comes from somewhere else. It's a distant. magical place. Yeah. It just kind of shows up. It's just there. We don't think of the land around us as providing for us. And like pretty much for all of human history up until, a, you know, mid century, people had this real sense of connection, uh, to land that it was something that you depended on. And I think we don't even, th- we don't think of depending on anything except maybe, you know, electricity and, you know, things like that. We just don't think of Our the land. As, yeah, we don't think <laughs> of the land as providing something for us. So that's one aspect I think that local food is that it it reintegrates us back into our environment. Um, I think, I mean, like for me, local food, when I cooked with it, like it's a, it's a different product. Like it tastes entirely different to me and it makes, I get so much more pleasure out of eating locally produced food than I do out of eating mass produced food of even, or, even organic mass produced food, which I buy. Um, and I think someone like Kamal, who's a chef at Relish, he was buying local food well before it was trendy because he just wanted the best ingredients. And I think that that's really revealing is that like a chef who didn't, you know, he didn't really care. Like he'll buy stuff from wherever, but it was like if he wanted to get the stuff that tasted the best so that he could make the best food, it had to be local. Um, so I think uh, 
yeah, local food reconnects us to our environment and it reconnects us to food as an actual like life-sustaining activity rather than something that we just kind of like have to get through so we can get to more interesting stuff. Right. You know, um, I think of food as being really central to my life rather than kind of, oh, well, I got to like, you know, cook dinner quick so I can go do the the stuff that I really want right. to do. Like for me, like actually like food is the, is an organizing act. Like it's, it's the way that I, um, give love back to people. Um, it's the way that like I take care of myself, take care of the people around me. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a more wholesome way of living, I think. So thanks, Jordan, for talking to me. I really appreciate it. And uh, I'll see you at the farmer's market. Yeah, you're welcome. Jordan Scheibel graduated from Grinnell in 2010 with a history major and a green thumb. He now runs Middleway Farm, an organic farm just east of Grinnell. Learn more about Jordan and his farm on our website, grinnell.edu slash podcast, or check out his farm at middlewayorganics.com. And if you're feeling inspired after listening to Jordan talk about the value of local food in his life, Share your own stories about what food means to you. Write me or send me an audio clip at podcast at grinnell.edu. Last week in Grinnell, there was something in the air. Snow and wind, yes, but also kindness. And not just your typical Midwest nice kind of vibe. It was something more. It was the 10 Days of Kindness. Organized by Lori Myron Manbeck, class of 1986, The 10 Days of Kindness featured over 45 events, with loads of music, movie screenings, a potluck, and tons of art. The polar vortex managed to derail a few of the events, but kindness won the day. Or most of the days, anyway. Cornelia Clark grew up in Grinnell and graduated from the college in 1909. As an only child, Clark spent much of her childhood in nature. She learned photography from her father, experimenting on her pet cats, and then turning her lens to the natural world, becoming a well-known nature photographer. More than 1,200 of her photos were published in newspapers, journals, and magazines throughout the country. Upon her death in 1936, she bequeathed more than 3,000 negatives to her friend and Grinnell College professor, Henry Conard. When Conard left Grinnell for the University of Iowa, he took Clark's photography with him, using them in his botany classes. But when he retired to Florida, He left the bulky negatives behind, stacked up in boxes, to be forgotten. At the turn of the century, when the University of Iowa ended its botany department, the glass plate negatives were discovered and rescued by the State Historical Society. Archivists assumed the negatives belonged to Conard, but in 2017, volunteers at the Grinnell Historical Museum discovered that the negatives actually belonged to Clark. The museum scanned a hundred of those negatives and put some on display at the Stewart Gallery in the Grinnell Art Center. The negatives, now almost 100 years old, show signs of their age and poor storage conditions. But Clark's keen eye and attention to detail are still visible. At a time when nature photography was a tad bit more cumbersome than using a selfie stick or a digital camera, Clark impressively wielded her camera to reveal the life stages of the plants she caught on film. The images remind viewers of nature's cycles and the tenuous life of the images themselves, once forgotten, now discovered. In other museum news, if you're in Grinnell, head over to the Drake Community Library to check out a new Smithsonian traveling exhibition. Hometown Teams, How Sports Shape America, opens Friday, February 15th, and runs until April 20th. There are also two powerful new exhibitions at the Faulkner Gallery. Reckoning with the Incident, John Wilson's Studies for a Lynching Mural, and Dread and Delight, Fairy Tales in an Anxious World. 
If you're not in Grinnell, fear not. We'll have a story about these exhibitions on the podcast in a few weeks. But if you can make it over to check them out, it's well worth the visit. Although Jordan's Middleway Farm isn't shipping his crops across the world, many farmers in Iowa do just that. So they've been directly affected by the ongoing trade disputes. Around 90% of Iowa's land is devoted to farming. And driving down I-80, you could be forgiven for thinking that Iowa is just one giant cornfield. It's easy to get lost in the maze, but you might be surprised that only 3.5% of the state's GDP is directly related to agriculture. When you throw in supporting industries, that figure rises to about 16%. So how big a part of the Iowa economy is agriculture, really? Jack Moody, Emeritus Professor of Economics at Grinnell, joined me to sort through all the noise about trade wars and understand how tariffs are affecting the economy here in Iowa and across the country. Agriculture isn't the only thing going on in Iowa. In fact, if you go to the webpage for the Iowa Economic Development Authority, they'll be telling you we're actually a pretty well-diversified economy here because we've got other sorts of activities going on where we're national leaders as well. So, for example, the insurance industry. We've got Grinnell Mutual here, Principal Financial and Des Moines, among others. We like to brag that we have the lowest tax on insurance premiums of any state in the nation, so we attract a lot of insurance activity here. There's clearly been a, a lot of action getting companies like IBM and Google and Amazon, the electronic data storage elements that we can see, the, the big units that are sitting out there on I-80, that would be another place that's created a lot of what we could even refer to as high-tech sort of activity. Then uh, there's renewable energy. We're number one in ethanol. We're number two in biodiesel. We're number three in wind power. So those are all potentially items of the future. I'm not sure how we would want to characterize all that. But we also have manufacturing. When we look at actually what gets manufactured, though, if you look at food processing or heavy equipment or chemicals, herbicides, and fertilizers being made, a lot of them link to agriculture. So it's not as if agriculture is this real tiny element that doesn't have other tie-ins to the rest of what's going on in Iowa. So from that standpoint, I think that we could still say agriculture is very important, especially in terms of what does Iowa sell to other states or other countries that let us buy things from other states and other countries. So agriculture would be one of the important exports there. Speaking of exports, who are our international trading partners in the agricultural sector? Yeah, so if we look at agricultural exports, our number one customer in 2017 was China, buying about $22 billion worth from the U.S. Then the number two customer was Canada, buying a little over $20 billion. And the number three customer was Mexico, buying almost $19 billion. So those three countries are an important slice of the market. Then I guess it makes sense that the primary targets of tariffs have been China, Mexico, and Canada. Can you take us through these tariffs and what those countries have done in response? Well, let's just walk through uh, sort of three different disputes that are going on right now, because I think it's sort of instructive to say, well, how have other countries responded in these disputes? Uh, 
So one of those that we want to look at is something that uh, occurred in April of 2018. The United States said on national security grounds, we're going to impose restrictions on imports of steel and aluminum. So we put on a 25% tariff on steel and a 10% tariff on aluminum. One of the countries affected was China. We provided a a delay while we negotiated further with Canada and Mexico and the EU, but by June 1st, they also were affected by those tariffs on steel and aluminum. So we clearly have got a a fair number of people riled up over this issue. And so, so if we looked at what did they choose to do in response? So China responded immediately with sort of a tit-for-tat strategy saying, if you're affecting this much of our trade, we'll affect that much of your trade. And the products they targeted right off the bat were pork. So they put a, the, an additional 25% tariff on pork. The, the original tariff was about 12% on frozen pork, which is most of what we send them. And they also put a 15% tariff on ethanol an additional 15% on top of the 30% from the previous year. So those clearly were going to affect the agricultural sector. They also addressed uh, fruit and nuts, things that aren't so big in the Iowa agricultural story, but for California and other places, that would be an important element to look at. And they hit steel products coming from the United States as well. So then on June 1st, when we affected our NAFTA partners, Mexico and Canada, Mexico responded with a 10% tariff on pork from the United States, and they raised it to 20% by the end of July. Now, in one sense, it's sort of interesting that Mexico did not immediately put a tariff on soybeans or corn, things that they could use to make feed to raise their own pork. And so they're basically saying, well, if we can bring the feed in, we can create employment for Mexicans, and we'll just keep the U.S. pork out so it's not competing with the Mexican farmers who are feeding out the pork instead. So an interesting strategy that looks like it it had an economic rationale. If you're trying to protect jobs in Mexico, that probably was a a good way to, to respond. Canada responded a little bit differently. They imposed a 25% tariff on steel coming in from the United States. So that looks sort of like tit for tat. But then they picked a lot of other products that we might wonder, well, this looks like a real grab bag of items that they choose to pick. But uh, if you look at the Canadian commentary, they basically said, well, we're going to pick items that we think will be most important politically. So if Paul Ryan, as Speaker of the House, produces pickles in his district, we're going after pickles. And if we have Mitch McConnell from Kentucky producing bourbon, we're going to go after bourbon. And if there are swing states like Pennsylvania and Florida that we know the Republicans want to hold on to, we're going to go after orange juice and we're going to go after Hershey's chocolate and things like that. So it looked like a a strange collection of items, but probably it was intended to ratchet up the political pressure to say, we should get this resolved, that this is an outstanding irritant here. If we look at that case, though, we we would find that uh, the United States eventually did sign an agreement with Mexico and Canada that's essentially replaced or changed NAFTA around, but they didn't deal with the 
U.S. national security restrictions on steel and aluminum, and they didn't deal with the Mexican retaliation on pork. That's still there. That still would be uh, a disadvantage in trying to get access to the Mexican pork market. So that's uh, about 40% of U.S. pork exports are now under restriction, either by Mexico or by China. Iowa State made some calculations and said that has resulted in the drop in the value of a hog by about $18 per hog. And if this lasts a whole year, we would be losing over $2 billion from that sort of a restriction. Wow. So that's a significant story that says you... You might hope there are going to be future negotiations to resolve that, but sort of the leverage to try to get a, a bigger agreement seems to have disappeared a little bit if uh, this U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement has been signed and this was not part of it. They sort of ignored that or swept it under the rug. Mm-hmm. So that's the first issue. Then we've also got the issue of tariffs levied against China because of inadequate protection for U.S. intellectual property. When China allows American firms to do business in their country, they often require that they share their technology. This was part of a Chinese development strategy. They had a a very flashy idea of made in China 2025, where by 2025 they wanted to be the number one producer in the world of eight different high-tech areas that are potentially areas where the United States also (laughs) might be number one or toward the top right now. And... uh, it looks like they would be targeting the U.S. position directly. So probably the the U.S. uh, looked on firmer grounds on that particular argument. If we said, well, what are industries of the future we should be preparing for versus sunset industries that are past their prime? So uh, the United States said, we are going to impose restrictions on $50 billion worth of Chinese trade. And, of course, this is a process where you release a list that says, here are the goods we're considering. We hold hearings, and other groups can come in and testify why that's a good target or a bad target and whether they need a waiver or those sorts of issues. So it started off with the U.S. putting restrictions on imports from China, and China retaliated. And importantly for Iowa, they targeted U.S. pork imports with an additional 25% tariff which brings the overall tariff on pork above 60%. At the same time, they added a 25% tariff on U.S. soybean imports. So a big impact on Iowa's economy, potentially. What other industries in Iowa might be affected by these tariffs? I think that it would be somewhat less direct. I mean, if we said, well, what's going to be the effect on insurance companies in Grinnell or what's going to be the effect on... Uh, McDonald's selling uh, hamburgers and Grinnell or something like that. I think there it would be more a matter of are we going to have a, a downturn in worldwide economic activity and are we more likely to have a recession? And that could cut across the board to lots of other industries. But that's uh, looking out much further into the future. On a related note, what is the impact of that uncertainty on the agriculture sector? It's clearly a a big element of uncertainty, not knowing what's going to come next. I mean, the the ag sector was clearly warning the president about uh, wading into an issue that uh, has long-term consequences. And they were reminding him, you've got to remember what happened when the United States imposed an embargo on sales of grain to the Soviet Union back in 1980. 
how long did it take us to reestablish a reputation as a reputable supplier of commodities to world markets? Or are we embargoed sales of soybeans to Japan in 1974? So all the times that the United States has said to other countries, well, you ought to have freer trade, you ought to rely on the market to acquire these goods on a reliable basis and a cheaper basis than if you try to produce them in a protected home market. We undercut our story a lot when we say, but actually we're not going to sell to you, or actually that we uh, are essentially going to give people an incentive to look elsewhere for their products. So I think that's one of the issues that uh, is going to be relevant over the long run. And so in the short run, there's a lot of uncertainty, but even in the long run, there's an uncertainty of how easily can you reestablish markets that you had in the past. So in the fall, the administration announced a compensation package that would provide relief to farmers who've been affected by these tariffs. It seems the first round of relief will be around 5 to $6 billion in aid. How will this work, and will it be enough to make a difference for farmers? So some form of compensation at least makes people feel a little better, <laughs> saying that they might not have volunteered be to the soldiers in this trade war going on, and so what can you do to, to try and cover some of those losses? And so this program that has been made available, the Market Facilitation Program, does allow for compensation to be paid to American producers. Now, it's not quite clear to me how they established the rates at which the compensation was going to be paid. For example, for soybeans, they've established a rate that that says that uh, you can qualify for $1.65 a bushel for half of your crop. So people have to wait until they've finished their 2018 harvest indicate, okay, here's what I produced. If I were receiving a $1.65 over half of that amount, and that, that same program said that hog producers were eligible for $8 per head for half of their sales. So we can see that that's uh, some element of compensation. I mean, if the Iowa State calculation was that they'd lost $18 a head, so they may get $4 a head back. So a little bit, but it's uh, probably not going to make them entirely whole. Although I think when people have uh, looked at what's happened most recently with crop yields, and at least in other states, so, so I've been looking at the Illinois reports, and Illinois has had a very good year on soybeans, so people are, if they're trying to figure out, well, what's my income this year compared to last year? Prices may be down a little, but uh, if the quantity is up, then... Makes up for it. Yeah, it makes up for it to some extent. I guess the, the other thing to mention is corn was only going to qualify for a penny a bushel. So some people were uh, saying, now, what is the logic of uh, a much bigger payment for soybeans, a much smaller payment for corn, even though corn prices have gone down a fair amount, just as soybean prices have gone down a fair amount? And there were payments available for wheat and cotton, even though wheat and cotton have gone up in price. So exactly, uh, was this a political story as to how these got set? Uh, Just very uh, non-transparent at this point here. 
But if we just looked at this from a standpoint of Powashik County, so Powashik County uh, last year produced about 6.2 million bushels of soybeans. So if they had essentially lost a dollar a bushel, that would be like $6 million that they would have less income within Powashik County. So if we start wondering, well, what might not be done, they might not buy as many new tractors and combines. They might change what they're spending on things in the, the local economy so that if we expect that to probably trickle through the, the rest of the economy when there's a, a big drop in income like that. So it seems like agriculture is due to suffer some collateral damage as a result of all these tariffs. Yeah, so collateral damage is a good way to characterize what, what's happening to Iowa agriculture, I'd say. The University of Illinois has done some other studies where they've looked at if you had pre-sold the, your, your crop, the 2018, 2018 harvest, way back in February, you would have got a price that was about $2 higher than what the cash price is right now. Wow. So, of course, Illinois Ag Extension would not recommend you pre-sell the whole thing. They'd yeah. say you ought to be selling throughout the year, sort of diversify whatever your Agricultural portfolio. Yeah, exactly. The, the same reason they tell us uh, don't uh, buy all of this stock or sell all that stock on a single day, spread it out over time, and you'll get the highs and the lows, and you'll get an average sort of return. So the average wouldn't be as bad as the $2 difference that you could observe between the February futures price and the actual delivery price in September. But if you said, well, maybe if they did continue to sell throughout the year, then you'd get a a loss of about a dollar. So it does say that there are some instruments to deal with uncertainty, but it would take somebody with a very perfect crystal ball to say that, yes, I would have sold everything (laughs) back in February. Yeah. And I, unfortunately, don't have one of those crystal balls. But instead, we get you. And that'll have to do for now. So thanks, Jack, for taking us through how these tariffs are impacting the economy here in Iowa and across the country. You're welcome. Jack Moody is an emeritus professor of economics here at Grinnell College. He's an expert on international trade and finance and has published numerous books on the subject. Links to some of the studies and data he mentioned are available on our website, grinnell.edu slash podcast. And with that, we'll wrap up this week's episode. On the next show, we'll talk with Ralph Savarese, professor of English here at Grinnell, about literature and autism. His new book, See It Feelingly, presents his experience of reading novels with autistic readers, including his son, DJ. With this book, Savarese is at the forefront of an emerging field called neurohumanities, which invites a dialogue between neuroscience and the humanities, and is challenging the way we think about learning. Ralph's book is eye-opening and essential, especially for people with autistic children who are trying to navigate the education system. I'm excited to share our conversation, and I hope you'll tune in. Music for today's show comes from Brett Newski, Audioblocks, and Poddington Bear. If you'd like to contact the show, Email us at podcast at grinnell.edu or check out our website, grinnell.edu slash podcast for more information about the guests from today's show. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. I'm your host, Ben Benversi. Stay weird, Grinnellians. Grinnellians.